So uh, as a pastor, my goal from uh, this pulpit, ultimately, in some regard, is, is to make you realize more and more than, than when you first walked into this room of how great of a Savior that you have. My purpose is, is essentially to reveal to you His gospel message of grace so that you will understand that Christ is your everything through faith in Him alone. To have you come to this uh, reality that He is faithfully, unconditionally faithful to you, keeping all His promises over you, even though you're not faithful to Him. I want you to see that His love for you is unconditional and doesn't come to an end. There's not a point in which His love for you will have to stop. I am determined right, to, to bring forth this absolute and magnificent truth that Christ has fulfilled everything that would ever be required of you to be right with God. All through simply trusting or having faith in Him alone. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I just have this deep fire constantly in my bones to declare to you that the things that we are looking for in this world, that when we were going out and we're looking for peace and we're looking for hope and security, we're looking for dignity, we're, we're looking for worth, we're looking for meaning and purpose and some type of establishment, we're looking for protection, we're looking for comfort. You know, we're, we're looking for direction, we're, we're looking for motivation and accomplishment, we're, we're looking for truth and wisdom and rescue, and we're looking for change, we're looking for life, we're looking for rest, we're looking for freedom, we're looking for joy, we're looking for love, we're looking for just something to make us feel alive in what we are doing. My goal is to tell you you're going to find all of that only in Jesus Christ. And not in the world around you. You're not going to find it within you. And you're not going to find it in the people around you. For we are to go to Christ for our everything. And I mean everything. All that we are and all that we do and all that we say and all that we think and feel and all that we know. For everything of all of our interactions with people and, and interaction with things in this world. See, we... We are to go to Him alone and see that He is the provider of absolutely everything for us now. That He has accomplished everything for us and He freely gives us everything unconditionally all through faith alone. My goal is to encourage you more and more in the truth of Luke chapter 12, verse 32, if it was kind of like a summary, which Jesus directly says to His people, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what, that he, what He wants to do that. When we focus on just how good then and how gracious our Savior is over us, how He came to live the life we could not live, a sinless life, how He came and He died the death we deserved, He took our wrath, and how He came back to life to give us what we could not earn, salvation, when we dwell on how He did this for us, even though we fail Him every day, even though we mess up and we sin against others, and ultimately we sin against God, but His favor is not removed from us, and His blessings don't stop coming to us, and His love is not shut down, but instead He gives us more of His grace through faith in Him. When we focus on that, which is my goal each week, 
When we focus that His power alone, by His power alone, through faith in Him, when we focus on that, that that's what, when we focus on it, this is what brings godly consequences in our life then. For our Savior graciously saved us, and He will graciously change us as we rely upon Him alone. The focus is on Him. Christianity is about what He has done. It's not what you do, it's on what He has done. That's the message we bring. For the promise of the gospel is not that we were only saved from the wrath of God to experience His love and favor and blessings now, but we're also saved to be His people, to be His children of God now into, unto eternity, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to, be, and to begin to take on His godly character and His ways in the world right now. It's all about what God has done. He is doing that in us. And this, and this happens more and more over time as we look to Jesus for these things and stop looking at ourselves or anyone or anything else to fix us or change us. The goal, again, is to look at Christ. For only Christ can do such things according to His ways and according to His time. It's all on Him. We just live a life of trust. So the idea is that we live from Christ through faith for Him as our everything. For He is our everything. So essentially, I'm basically saying, I want you to give up on trying to change yourself by your own power and give in to trusting in Christ alone for Him to change you by His power through faith in Him. Going to him with empty hands of faith. You bring to him nothing. But he gives you everything. But as we know, that is the battle we face every day in this world. Right? That's the battle. For the world, the flesh, the devil wants us to live otherwise. The world wants us to live from Christ in as little as possible, if at all, as we go about our lives. It wants you, you to be the source of something or look for the source of someone or something else to be something for you other than Christ. It doesn't want you to look at Christ to be the source of all that you are. But we must remember Christ has come to save us from that. And to be the very source of all that we are now. To be fully dependent upon His power, His strength, His wisdom, His direction, His definitions, His identity alone. It's all about Him. So in our text today of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, this is what Paul is going to go over. He wants us to remember, as our title says, Christ is our everything. So let's look at the text and see what we can learn then about our gracious Savior. So Paul here begins with this verse. He says, for you may be sure of this. Now, why would he have to say that? Right? Well, I mean, like, think about it. He's already talking to believers. He's already commended them for their faith, if you read at the beginning of this book. So why would he say, like, you may be sure of this? Well, as the old hymn goes, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we are prone 
to forget the truth or make little of the gospel message in our life. To find it boring. Say, ah, I got this already. If you sin, you don't got it. Too easily, the reality of sin is not a big deal to us because we forget how truly of a big deal it was and is to our Savior. It was such a big deal to him that he had come to give up his life for us so that we can be free from the power of sin over us. And that is something we must never forget. And we are to be reminded of every day. And though we may think we know it and believe it, and and that is true, there is still a sense of doubt that does constantly arise in us. There's still that struggle in believing that Christ has come to be our everything, which is why we sin. But Paul here is encouraging us to grow in our trust in seeing how Christ is our everything so that we can see how we are free from our sins now and we don't need them or need to go to them at all in our life for they can give us nothing. And this brings us to our first point. Christ is our everything. Without him, you have nothing. Paul says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, this is a sobering truth that we all have to come to grips with. Paul is not being harsh for the sake of being harsh. No, he's reminding us of what we have now as believers in Christ and what non-believers, people who who reject Christ, what they don't have. And Paul lays out who some of these non-believers are. He he doesn't give an exhaustive list, but from what we have here, it's meant for us to be certain that these are non-believers who need Christ. There is no maybe, there is no wiggle room, there is no doubt. So he really narrows in on people and not just abstract principles of people, but but full-on categories of individuals. By saying everyone or every person, Paul is becoming very specific in what a non-believer looks like. So there is no question in this passage. By using the word who is, Paul is speaking directly about people who are perfectly okay with being sexually immoral or impure. Meaning, people pursuing sexual activity or pursuing sexual inclinations outside of a marriage of a biological male and a biological female alone. They are perfectly okay with pursuing and dwelling in their mind and their hearts and their verbal expressions and physical expressions of immoral passions, desires, and fantasies that should not be and should be limited and confined to the confines of marriage. But the people he's talking about want to go beyond it and ignore it and not let God define it. Having their minds be full of sexual thoughts and feelings and emotions and expressions of self that are beyond what God intended between a marriage of a biological male and biological female alone. 
If someone has no issue with living such a lifestyle, then Paul says this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We can be sure that they are not a believer with no questions. Paul then adds then with this, who is the category of those who are covetous or greedy, those who have no issue with greed or living a lifestyle of greed. Paul says that person also is one who has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. But if you notice, Paul takes us deeper into what covetousness or greed really is, which really in this context, Paul is defining ultimately what being okay with sexual immorality or impurity or greed really is. He's getting to the heart of it, of all these sins. Really sin in general, but specifically with these. A summary, if you will. Paul says that ultimately being okay with any of these sins listed here in a person's life, saying, well, that's just how I am, that's how I roll, that's how I live. That makes a person an idolater. And and what is that? An idol is really something that you put your love, your devotion, your confidence, your trust, your service, and obedience to that deserves to be to God alone. Or think of it this way, whatever it is, your life would be crushed without it. Life would not be worth living anymore. It would have no meaning. That, whatever that is, that's an idol. So an idol, think of it this way, if it were to go away and there would be, there would be no more of whatever you would lose, you would lose who you are in this world. Because it was where you drew your everything from. Your life was centered around it. And you live from it as the source of who you are. For without it, you would not know how to act or think or what to say. Or you would not know how to live. For your life was all based on whatever that thing or person or idea is. It defined your direction. So an idol, for example, can be people's kids. It can be their spouse. It can be their parent. It can be their friend. Others, it can be their job, their finances, their collections. It can be politics. It can be hobbies. It can be health. It could be liked by people or the fear of people. An idol can be anything that gives you that rescue and provision you are looking for that only God can and should provide, which he has provided in Christ. And in this context, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, is idolatry. And in our world today, it's not hard to see it. How people idolize things and will do whatever it takes to pursue it and have others agree to it and submit to it. For really, this issue comes down to belief. What is and who is your God that you serve and live in obedience to, to be your everything? And for the Christian, that answer is easy. Should be. It's Christ. But for the world, it's everything but Christ. And Paul then ends this verse with, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or put differently, those who give themselves over and defend 
them, let me say this again, those who give themselves over and defend themselves to stay in such lifestyles are not living from the inheritance of, in heaven, for they have nothing to live from there. They are living from something else, whatever that is, whether it's self or someone else or something else, they are living as enslaved people to their sins. There is nothing godly about them. They are unregenerate and spiritually dead. Or put bluntly, they are spiritually dead people who live to defend themselves, to live according to these sins, because these sins are their idols, whom they serve to get that short fizzle of self-gratification from moment to moment to moment to moment. For in the end, life for the non-believer is all about pleasing self through making false idols. Sin makes life all about you, really emphasizing the I in sin. And these people Paul is speaking of are living a life all about them with their own personal made-up gods and not the God of the Bible. Now, what needs to be stated here, and it's very important, so if your mind is wandering or if you're a bit of a loss or it's kind of a lot to take in, come back. Realize Paul is not saying, he is not saying that if you struggle with any of these sins listed here, which we all do in some fashion, For example, no matter who you are, you do make little idols of things in your heart that you devote yourself to in a way that takes the place of God in some area of your life that we need to turn away from so they don't grow into a massive idol and consume your life. For the power of sin is dead in our life, but its presence is not. Not yet. One day will be once we get to heaven, but the presence is still there. But here's the thing. Whatever the sin is, as believers, we are not okay with the sins. For example, even the ones that are pointed out in this text, when they are pointed, we're not okay with the sins when they are pointed out by God's word through the power of the spirit. We are grieved by them. So we go to God in repentance of them or We go to him to grant us repentance of them so we can be grieved by them. Really, there is a change of mind towards the sins that are revealed because because we are living from the inheritance in heaven, which really is God himself with us now, and we will be with face-to-face one day. So, Christ is our everything, and with him we have everything, so we go to him for our everything. See, when Paul talks about this inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God, Paul says, unlike believers who worship false gods, who can give them nothing, they're doomed to their sins without Jesus, we, people who have faith in Christ, are not enslaved to these sins anymore in our lives that he's listing here. For we are now the children of heaven. We are the children of the kingdom right now. And Christ is implementing the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly rule in our hearts through faith alone. 
in him, by looking to him. He is building the spiritual kingdom within you as an individual and within us collectively. He is working to implement the kingdom from above, which will one day come into full fruition when the end of the world comes. Since we have this inheritance in the kingdom now, Paul is saying, look, you are favored, you are loved, you are cared for. So much now that the world, by God's sovereign hand, is being bent now to only better you in the Lord, no matter what comes your way. Though in the world's eyes it may not look like it, it is true though. For when we look at our lives in the world from the gospel lens of Christ's victory over death and sin, it promises that God is now at work within us and for us and around us. God is on our side by faith alone. So all things now work for our good in him. That, that is the promise of the gospel and one of the great inheritance we have from the kingdom of God. So we don't need anything else. We just go to him. For it says in Romans 8, 28, for we know that those who love God, or those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But he doesn't just say it there. He also said it in the very beginning of Ephesians, of this book. He said the same thing in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So the working of the kingdom in us, or as Paul is really pointing out, living from this inheritance we have in Christ, Christ then is is in us, And by going to him through faith, we go to him to change our hearts, to change our feelings, to change our thoughts, to really change the way we view the world in which we live in, even down to how we view and define ourselves. And we define our relationships. For all of it now comes from him and none else. We are in his kingdom And in this context, Christ has come to define what sin in our life or really come to define the sins we are free from in this life that he has listed here. Because see, right, because in the kingdom, right, for in the in the kingdom that's to come, there will be no sin in that kingdom. So as that kingdom then is being implemented more and more in our hearts and minds and lives through faith in Christ to see Him as, every, as our everything, He, through the power of the Spirit, reveals the sins or pushes out those sins in our life. It just happens. It's a consequence. And one of the primary ways that that is done is that our joy and our gratification we have had from our sins becomes less and less. That's the kingdom at work within you. We have a growing disgust for them because they disgust God. Our lives become more and more centered on living from the inheritance of the kingdom we are in and less from the sins that we commit. We don't want to identify ourselves around them or build our lives around them. In fact, we want to run away from them. We try to turn away from them and turn to Christ in their stead. Christians don't live perfectly, but we do live differently. 
And that difference is that now we struggle with our sins for we have a distaste for them now because we are feasting upon the bread that fills our mind and drinking from the water that quenches our heart all through faith in Christ and his finished works on our behalf. Sins just don't taste the same. So Paul here then continues in verse 6 and says something here that in our day that we really need to take heart and pay attention to as Christians. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And this brings us to our last point. Christ is our everything. Without him, you are left with wrath alone. See, Paul here is telling the Ephesians and us that this world is going to say all that we have just stated here is wrong. Or put differently, every day you get up, you will have to deal with people saying you are wrong in this. But don't be tricked into believing what they say. No matter how passionate or enticing their words or arguments may be. For they are just empty words, Paul is saying. And what he means is that whatever is said is just shallow and twisted because they take no account of the living God and his word. Or put differently, there is no truth to their claims that living such a lifestyle of sexual immorality or impurity, greed or idolatry, that God takes no issue with it or does not care, but is actually for it. No, Paul straight up says, oh, God cares. He cares because it's an offense towards him to live in such a way. For Paul says, for because of these things, these sins that he's listed here, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And this verse here is one of those verses that, that are meant, that's meant to kind of make you stop and rethink your thoughts towards the sins of sexual immorality, the sins of impurity, the sins of greed, and ultimately the sin of idolatry. That is the main point of this passage, so that you and I don't become deceived into thinking these sins are okay in any sense of the word. For Paul saying as bluntly as possible here, that those who are okay with these sins, in any sense, whether they're physically participating or physically watching, and think that these sins are just a simple expression of being a human and should be embraced by all, Paul is revealing to us that these sins, or these people, are not believers. They are not sons of God, but sons of disobedience. And the wrath of God is upon them now and is building towards the day that God will, in His full expression of wrath, will place it upon them. Anyone who braces these sins as their identity, or really any sin, as their identity, saying God's okay with it, and or they are okay with it, and they don't care what God thinks. Paul is saying they are the sons of disobedience. And they only have God's wrath upon them, and building upon them until that final day when they see Him face to face in His fury over their sins. It's like I saw this a long time ago when people say, only God can judge me. And your response is, I know, that's what I'm trying to warn you of. 
Now, it's important to state again here that Paul is not saying those who struggle with these sins. Okay? He's not talking about people who struggle with these sins and go to Christ constantly by faith to change their hearts. They are not under wrath. For Christ took all the wrath towards us that we deserve, past, present, and future for our sins. He's not speaking about that. Paul is not speaking about believers who are repeat offenders, who rely upon Christ's finished works to save them because they know they can't make it in this life on their own because they fail so much. He's not saying they are sons of disobedience. For we are sons of God by faith alone in what Christ has done for us. His perfection, not ours. No, he is saying those who accept these sins and practice these sins with no regard with what God says, with no turning from them in any sense, are sons of disobedience. For God's wrath is still upon them and ever building towards them. Now you might ask, well, what does all of this then mean for the believer? Because understand, that's who he's writing to. He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. Understand this. Paul, in these two verses, is not threatening us to not give in to these sins because God will abandon us or destroy us in his wrath. He's not trying to scare us into following after God. Not at all. The whole point of this is to create in us grateful hearts to help us realize how faithful God is to us through the promise of the gospel, even though we still sin against him. Paul is wanting us to see how God still loves us and cares for us so much that we remember that he sent his son to die for those very sins you are struggling with and sometimes willfully give into. That is the goal of this text, to stir our hearts, to want to flee from these sins and have our hearts grow ever bigger towards our God by seeing his love for us even in our sins. For through faith in Christ, he took the eternal wrath that you and I deserve for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Even though he, Christ, never sinned, he was condemned as the sexual immoral, immoral person in your place for the things you would and have and maybe are committing. He was condemned as the impure person in your place for all of those wretched sexual evil thoughts and feelings and inclinations you have done or are doing or will do. He was condemned as the greedy, as an idolater in your place for all that selfish gain that you have done, are doing, or will do. When you only think of yourself to get a personal selfish gratification with no regards for anyone else. Christ stood condemned in your place out of love for you. The wrath was placed on him because of your sins so that you do not have to face it right now nor will you ever have to face it in the future, all by having faith in him. You're free. When you think of Christ, that is why we can be so sure and not be tricked or deceived into thinking God is okay with sin in our life on any level. We only need to look to the gospel, look to see what was done graciously for you upon the cross. 
For Christ came to cover your life with His blood and take the condemnation we deserve. And this is why we should not be okay with sexual immorality or impurity or greed or any sin at all in our life. For Christ died for the very sins we commit because they could not give us anything but death. But He came to give us life. Paul is saying, keep choosing life. Keep choosing Christ. For He can and will provide what you need by His grace. He'll provide what you need and even more. Or put differently, you always hear, His grace is greater than our sin, right? So why would you ever want your sin? Because it's so great. His sin is so, I'm sorry, His grace is so great. Why would you ever want sin? That's what Paul is getting at. Grace has freed you. You have everything already you need in Christ. That's the beauty of grace. There's no justification for choosing sin at all because we have it all in Jesus. Everything we need, we have in Christ. And he freely gives us everything. So I pray that all of us will reflect on his grace daily so that through his grace we can turn from our sins and see truly how he is our everything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done. God, if there's someone struggling here who doesn't know you, I pray that they come to know you now and just reach out an empty hand of faith and say, Christ, I need you. I am a sinner in need of your grace. God, if there are people here, which I'm sure, because all of us in some sense, we struggle with sins in our life. Sometimes we want to hold on to it. And some, Lord, if we're feeling condemnation because of our sin, Lord, remove it. There is no condemnation in you. May we turn to Jesus, turn to your Son to know that we have been forgiven and so we can be free and be consumed with your grace rather than consumed with our sin. Oh God, help us stop looking at ourselves to fix ourselves and help us just look to you to be consumed with your goodness. Whatever's lovely, whatever's pure, whatever's good. Help us to be overwhelmed with such things. Lord, there is a world that's dying out there who is under your wrath, but you sent your son to come and save. God, I pray we can take this freeing message of grace and and live our lives by it and underneath it and wave a banner, Lord, that says Jesus has done it all. He's done everything that others will take notice and we too can just pass on that banner and say he's freed you too by faith in him. God, help us be people of grace. We pray this in your son's name.